This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Do you need some hope? Do you need some way to make it make sense? What's happening to this country, what's happening to its politics, to its economy, to its military, to its cities, but also what's happening to its honor, what's happening to its heritage, what's happening to its purpose? Do you want an answer? Do you need an answer? I do. I'm Philip Nice. This is Trump at our 101.3 KPCG. I need an answer. I need to know how it was and why it got this way, why it's like this now, why I now look at the news and I see no leadership and no economy and no victories and no shining cities, why I see things that it is a shame to even speak about. So I'm not going to speak about those things right now. I don't speak about them any more than I have to. These dishonorable, wicked things happening to this country, happening in this country. I need answers. I think you do too. Any politician or newsreader or analyst or author or preacher or whatever, if you get up there and you want to talk about these issues, you need to give us answers. And at this point, the weak answers and the trite answers and the calculated answers and the wrong answers really are showing their quality. Our comfortable little ways of thinking in the break room or the living room or the school or the church or wherever are wrong, and that's being exposed. They don't explain this, this catastrophic wretchedness that our country is in. And today I want to talk a little bit about something that does, something that does explain, something that specifically explains. It's a certain book about a certain nation and a certain section about a certain man. And I'll tell you why it explains But first, I've invited a couple trumpet authors onto today's episode to talk about some of the evidence, some of the support that today, a lifetime after this book was first written, shows that this book and its explanations are worth consideration. And this book shows us why we are in this catastrophe of wretchedness. And it also shows us that it doesn't have to be this way. Our country could be so much different. It could be more than what the best visionaries have hoped for. It could be far more than what certain political movements are, are, are even fighting for or even hoping for. It could be even more, this country, than what our founders hoped for. And I do not say that last sentence lightly. So let's look at this example, this, this example from a different time, this, this better time and why it was better. And let's see if we can find some answers and some hope. So one of the essential things to understand about this example, this rare, bright, shining example in the darkness of human history, in the darkness of human government, is this history that really happened is how the people got there and who they were, Mihailo Zekic. 
we're going to start off with a group, an ancient people that uh, most people around the world have some cursory knowledge of called the ancient Israelites, a.k.a. the people, the Hebrews of the Hebrew Bible, the uh, the ancient race that billions of people around the world look to at least having some sort of relevance to their religion, to their sacred texts. But while many people may look to, to the Israelites as, say, a religious group, as this cultural uh, shall we say, influencer for thousands of years for Western civilization. Uh, it, it doesn't just contain the Bible. Doesn't just contain moral precepts or, or uh, just ways on how to live your life. It also contains a lot of history in it as well. Obviously, the history of the ancient Israelites, but that's just that's not necessarily limited to the geographical area of what we call Israel today. As far as we're concerned, what we're going to talk about now is sort of the other side of the known world from the Israelites. We're going to talk about the British Isles. And it might be a surprise for some people to learn that the Israelites actually have and had a presence in those islands. Now, the editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, wrote a book decades ago. It's been gone through many different versions. It's called The United States and Britain in Prophecy. And it speaks to great length about the influence of these Israelites in the British Isles and beyond, not just when they arrived, but how long they lasted there, what kind of impact they've had in neighboring civilizations and around the world. Uh, the main uh, crux, shall we say, of the of the book is that the Israelites, through different means, ended up migrating to the British Isles, then sailing over to the New World, to America, to uh, other parts of the world, and they would be known as what we would call the English-speaking peoples today. That's a pretty big claim to make. Uh, Mr. Armstrong does a pretty good job in the booklet on analyzing the biblical evidence, looking through a lot of secular evidence for that. There's a lot more than a lot of people would suspect. But since then, there's actually been quite, uh, quite a bit of research done on this subject, maybe necessarily by people that agree with the contents of that book. But there's been a lot more physical evidence that has surfaced that corroborates what Mr. Armstrong wrote. Now, in order to corroborate this, we need to prove two things or support two, shall we say, statements. One, that the ancient Israelites, that the people of the ancient Middle East knew about Britain and were able to get there physically, and two, evidence from the culture of the British Isles, from the culture of places like Britain and Ireland that suggests that those people actually live there and have a lasting impact on those areas for a long time. When we think about the past, we we are victims of, of I don't know if it's evolutionary theory or what, but you, you, you get back beyond the, the 1990s or something, you think everything was the Stone Age. <laughs> you know, you don't realize like, <laughs> you know, because I'm like, oh, well, I know, I mean, Israel is definitely a nation. Israel, uh, you know, it shows up in other, you know, the, the records of other nations and empires. And uh, it's it was clearly a, a historical fact. And it's... It's way over there on the eastern end of the of the Mediterranean Sea, and the what are today the British Isles are these islands way you know out the other side of the of the sea around the Iberian Peninsula all the way up to you know the North Atlantic, and so you're thinking of Hebrews or Israelites or, or the people of Israel down there in, in the uh, 
hot and balmy area of the uh, of, of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and so forth, and then you're picturing them up in the in the uh, the, the these north in the North Atlantic, you know the lush you know forty shades of green Ireland, <laughs> or 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 Britain or, or Scotland, and it's it's uh, like I said it's a it's a stark statement to make, and yet. You, once you start reading or even listening to podcasts about ancient and not so ancient history, you realize there was trading going on. There was there was migration going on. These people were not just, you know, assorted cavemen that, you know, or, or just primitive uh, as primitive as we think. There was quite a bit of of uh, travel and, and there's evidence of that. So I just always have to remind myself that uh, the past was oftentimes more advanced than you would think. Oh, of course. Uh, We could even start with there, Uh, not just the Israelites, but ancient people in general were a lot more mobile than we'd like to give them credit for. As you said, you had the Phoenicians, the ancient civilization of Lebanon. They colonized the Atlantic coast of Spain and Africa during the Iron Age. Uh, during the times of Alexander the Great, you had Greeks settling as far away from Greece as Afghanistan. Uh, people are throughout what we would call the ancient world are moving to and fro to all sorts of different areas. And the Israelites are not an exception to that. So as I mentioned earlier, we first off, we have to establish the fact that the Israelites, the people of the Levant in general, they knew where Britain was and they were going there. Now, a lot of people, they'll consider the West, Western civilization, to first move into this part of the world with Julius Caesar and the Romans in the first century BC. The Israelites, actually, there's pretty good scientific evidence to show the Israelites were visiting Britain about a thousand years before that. (laughs) A thousand years, wow. Uh, Yeah, and even longer. Uh, This is one uh, prominent example that uh, corroborates this. In 2012, in the area around Haifa, which is a city on Israel's uh, northern Mediterranean coast, archaeologists discovered a shipwreck from the 13th century BC. So that would be the 1200s BC with a collection of tin ingots, the metal tin. Now, that's not surprising. The Mediterranean coast has always been a hub for people sailing in, uh, exchanging things like uh, like metals and, and other valued goods. But at that time, over 10 years ago, technology hadn't developed enough to be able to analyze the metal to see where it came uh, from. And then around 2019, there was a new type of testing that allowed scientists to test tin from different areas from the Mediterranean, which included that shipwreck. And then they analyzed the isotopes from those ingots, and they were able to figure out where those ingots came from originally. And uh, perhaps surprisingly, they came from none other than Cornwall, which is the southern uh, little little boot, I guess you could say, on the south southwestern coast of England. This is in the 1200s BC. But by, by, by perspective, the kingdom of Israel under King David, that wasn't going to show up until another 200 years later. This is early. Uh, So this would date to roughly around the time of what we would call the judges period in Israel, 
supposedly when Israel was a bit more disunified, bit less technologically advanced, bit less wealthy, and they're still having trade all the way to this end of the known, the other end of the known world. And if that's what they're doing this early on, later on in the biblical narrative, once you get to the kingdoms of David and Solomon, the Bible speaks a lot about their partners with the Phoenicians, which I just mentioned, with pe the people of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. We have pretty good archaeological evidence that they settled basically throughout the Mediterranean world and beyond. I mentioned the settlements there in places like Cadiz in Spain uh, that date to the Phoenician period in places like Morocco. Uh, there's even evidence that one point the Phoenicians even sailed all the way to West Africa. And these, according to the Bible, according to First Kings, these were Israel's partners in trade. These were the peoples that the Israelites were going sailing with to exotic locations like this to collect luxury goods, to visit and come back and establish networks with. So the idea that Israelites and Levantine people in general were able to visit places like Britain, as you can see, it starts early on, and while, again, the archaeology can be patchy in certain places, it's, it all depends on what we find. We obviously don't have the whole record right in front of us, but it is still pretty conclusive that there was significant ex cultural exchanges, material exchanges, even settlements with Western Europe and this part of the Middle East for a long time. So from kinds of evidence like this, we know that, like you said, the Israelites knew about Britain, knew about those uh, isles, and could get there. Uh, whether they were, you know, partially reliant on the on the Phoenicians or or uh, however it was that they got there, there was uh, shipping going on between the two before Israel became a kingdom. <laughs> it was a it was a nation. Uh, but that shipwreck, you said it dates to 12, uh, 1200 BC. That means that at least one boatload and presumably a lot more of that, that metal, which was used to, to make bronze, that boat was built and being used before King David, before King Saul, before Israel was even a nation. In the hundreds of years that Israel was a kingdom, uh, that trade would have, have flourished further, as you said, so that's one thing, but actually living that far afield or that far abroad is the second thing you mentioned. Do we have physical evidence that kind of highlights the fact that they could have actually moved there? Well, yes. Before we continue, it uh, would be smart to establish that According to the biblical narrative and according to uh, what archaeology can corroborate with the biblical narrative, there is no, shall we say, one transplanting of people from Israel to this part of the world. There's various different migrations. There's uh, a passage in Judges 5 that speaks of the tribe of Dan uh, abiding in ships. Some people even translating that as being clients in ships, being engaged in mercantile trade. Uh, the, Dan uh, the Danites... Uh, there's other evidence to suggest that they were a seafaring people that interacted with different uh, different parts along the Mediterranean. Some people speculate that the Danoi, a, uh, a uh, seafaring Greek tribe, was partially descended from them. But first off, well, you have this continuous connection of people that that are that are sailing to places like Britain for 
for since at least the 1200s and for possibly hundreds of years beyond that. But the main migration that we'd be concerned about at this point is a migration that takes place hundreds of years after that. As Mr. Armstrong brings out in the United States and Britain in prophecy, Israel or the Israelite tribes ended up becoming captive to the Assyrian Empire. You could read that in 2 Kings 17. The Israelites disobeyed the God of the Bible, disobeyed the God of their forefathers through sins like idolatry, like ignoring God's holy Sabbath days. And because of that, God lets them get captured by the Assyrians and eventually through the Assyrian captivity and through migrations from the Middle East from there. That's where a lot of these people end up getting into the British Isles. Mr. Armstrong goes into more detail about the process of that. But the the sins, the religious sins of the Israelites is what gets them into captivity, but it's also these same religious sins that we could actually use to trace the migration of these people into places like the British Isles, into Britain, into Ireland, especially their religious system itself. Now, First Kings 12 brings up a, an individual called Jeroboam, who was king over Israel. He uh, split off from the previous dynasty over Israel, the Davidic monarchy. We mentioned King David earlier. And he was worried that if he didn't change Israel's religion, the, the Davidic throne still controlled Judah, which would be southern Israel, uh, in, uh, centered in Jerusalem. And that was where God's temple was. That was where the Israelites were supposed to look to for worship. And Jeroboam was worried that if he didn't do something to break away his people's connections with Jerusalem, then they were going to reject him and go back to the old dynasty. So 1 Kings 12 brings out what he did. He took the religion, the true religion that was established, and he counterfeited it. He brought in some pagan ideas from nations roundabout, and he took some ideas that were biblically based and tweaked them a little bit. So that way they wouldn't exactly line up with, with what was in the Bible, but they would still be familiar enough to the people on the ground. Specifically, verse 28 of 1 Kings 12 mentions that uh, Jeroboam set up idols of golden calves and said that these be your gods or these be Elohim, the name of God in the in the Hebrew Bible that they were to worship, and he associated them with calves. So they, they had a bit of knowledge of the true God, but it got mixed in with paganism. Later in 2 Kings 18, we see that the snake was another big symbol that they worshipped. In verses 32 to 33 of 1 Kings 12, we see that Jeroboam counterfeited the holy days of God's plan, including what the Bible calls the Feast of Tabernacles, a seven to eight day, depending on what you consider part of those days, a fall festival that takes place in the autumn, which we're getting into the season right about now. He moved his days over a month later. And we see some of these these traditions, interestingly enough, reflected in the religious traditions of the British Isles in the ancient world and even beyond that. Now, today, we would call these people, this religion, the Druids or Druidism. Uh, some people may associate them with places like Stonehenge and nature worship and that sort of thing. There's still people that practice Druidism today. The Druidism, especially in ancient times, has some interesting parallels with God's true religion. For one thing, Druids sacrificed animals. They sacrificed things like sheep, goats, cows, but they didn't sacrifice pigs. They didn't sacrifice creatures that we would consider 
unclean as per the biblical health laws. You could see, read some of those in Leviticus 11. The Jews today are famous for not eating things like pigs or shellfish. They have a very important festival in the fall called Samhain, which depending on uh, – there's different views on how to celebrate it. It normally falls on November 1st, but sometimes it could last for up to seven to eight days. It's roughly around the same time period where Jeroboam moved his holy days to, roughly the same time period as what is revealed in the Bible about the Feast of Tabernacles. Another uh, aspect of the religion is that Druids are, or, or at least the ancestral peoples of Britain, and this carried over into Druidism as it became more established, uh, values the setting up of piles of rocks as memorials, as tombs, as other things. They're called cairns today. They're all over Britain and Ireland, just these piles of rocks. And if you look at biblical traditions, like in Genesis 31, like in Joshua 4, we see the Israelites setting up piles of rocks, cairns, so to speak, as memorials. Same purpose that that these that cairns in the British Isles were set up. Specifically, you look at passages like Exodus 20, Joshua 8, and Altars were in biblical Israel were supposed to be made with unhewn stones piled on top of one another, just what we see today. And the cow and the snake, as ever mentioned before, those are also big sacred symbols among the Druids. So you're seeing all these interesting parallels between the religion of ancient Britain and the religion of Jeroboam, and even past the counterfeits, the biblical kernels of truth from the Bible being associated with that. That's the religion there. There's not just the religion. We could also even look at the languages themselves of these peoples. Today, we would consider the Celtic peoples, the descendants of those ancient Britons that through various ways got into the islands, people from Ireland, people from Scotland, people from Wales. And a lot of linguists have noticed some interesting parallels between Celtic languages and Semitic languages, the same languages or language family that includes uh, Hebrew, that includes Arabic, that includes some of these other Middle Eastern languages. Uh, this is just a couple of uh, uh, examples. Both sets of language families have have definite articles, but no indefinite articles. What exactly does that mean? Well, you think about the sentence, I would say the king versus a king. The king would imply one particular king, while, while a king would imply a king in general. In both Semitic and Celtic languages, you have the definite article that's the. So if we were to say the king in Hebrew, be Hamelech, the king. But if we wanted to say a king, we just say Melech. It literally means king. There is no a that goes beforehand. It's the same thing in Celtic languages. Like the word, as an example, in Welsh, the word for king is Brenin. That would be the same word as king or a king. There is no a. And then you have another, even the language structure itself, it follows what we would call a verb subject object. So in biblical Hebrew, if I wanted to say the man drank water, it would be situated as drank the man water. The verb comes first, then the subject, then the object, or in biblical Hebrew at least. And same thing with classical Arabic. This, that's also the same thing with Welsh, with Irish, with some of these other Celtic languages. It might go a little bit over the head of some people, but this is a, it's just a smattering of some of the, the similar parallels that we see with Semitic languages and Celtic languages. And linguistics, some of you even theorizing, that must mean that at some point there was a migration of people from the Middle East that settled in these parts and influenced these people, and you could still tell the influence from these languages. 
it's just, again, a scra- scratching of the surface. But there is evidence there. There is evidence there to corroborate what's written in the United States and Britain in prophecy. In, and you can corroborate independently even from what the evidence has brought up, brought up in that book. So there's evidence that people migrated to Britain. There's evidence that people stayed there and left their mark to this day. So some teases, some glimpses, some bits of evidence here and there. Language obviously being a very important one. I mean, a lot of history, especially ancient history, is tracked through it, through their languages. And when you know what to look for, and United States and Britain and Prophecy being the, the guide book to, to show you what to look for, it is amazing. It is fascinating what new bits of information come out, what studies on old bits of information come out, and how they indicate more and more here and there, bit by bit, that Israel still exists today. Thank you, Mihailo Zekic, for working late, working overtime, coming back into the studio there in England to record with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. So in this segment, we're focusing in on the man that all of this revolves around, Jeremiah. Who was he? What happened to him? Where did he go? And how do we know? Andrew Miller, introduce us to Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah is one of Israel's most famous prophets, the primary prophet who was on the scene uh, warning the Israelite royal family during the fall of Jerusalem in 585 uh, B.C. Uh, Just looking through Bible chronology, I think as close as the chronologists tell, is that he was born around 650 B.C., uh, which would have made him about 65 years old when Jerusalem fell. And and he'd been uh, on the scene as a prophet for about 40 years at that point. So putting in a lot of work, warning the royal family, uh, all in vain, Israel did not repent. The Babylonians invaded, uh, carried the Jews away captive. Jeremiah actually had to had to flee his homeland and go to the land of Egypt. This is all recorded in the Bible. You can read that in Jeremiah 43, verses 8 through 11, which talks about Jeremiah and a delegation after Nebuchadnezzar's invasion uh, fleeing to the land of Egypt. Over 100 years ago, uh, Petrie Flanders, one of the most famous Egyptologists of all time, excavated the city of Tephanis, which is mentioned in the Bible, and, uh, and found a, a mid-sized palace there and asked the locals about it. And the locals called it Kassar bint al-Yahudi, which is Arabic for the castle of the Jew's daughter. And so even the locals, they called this castle in Tephanis the castle of the Jew's daughter. And, uh, and Petrie Flanders excavated it. The local tradition was, is like uh, the Bible says that Jeremiah, when he fled there, he didn't go on his own. He went with a group, including uh, the daughters of King Zedekiah. Now, King Zedekiah and his sons were taken into Babylonian captivity when Jerusalem fell and they were killed there. The line of Zedekiah, the, the, the sons were wiped out, but the daughters did not go into Babylonian captivity. The Bible is clear with that. They said that they went with Jeremiah uh, after 585 to the land of Egypt. 
and were almost adopted like stepdaughters to the, the pharaoh at the time, uh, which would have been Pharaoh Hafra or Pharaoh uh, Apres. Um, they, they used both names. Uh, but that's interesting. So, so since, since the 1880s, we've actually had archaeological evidence of the castle Jeremiah lived in uh, while he was in Egypt. The Bible doesn't actually follow Jeremiah's story after Egypt. We know he did stay at that castle for some years. Uh, if you are across our book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, Mr. Herbert Armstrong talks about Jeremiah going to Ireland in the year 569, which is about 16 years after Jerusalem fell, indicating that Jeremiah, he spent about 16 years in this castle of the Jews' daughter that Petrie Flanders discovered before continuing on. And so that's pretty good archaeological evidence because uh, Jerusalem is one of the most well-excavated cities in history for obvious reasons. And so the, the fall of Jerusalem, that's a period of history that's been thoroughly studied by archaeologists and, so, and, and scientifically confirmed uh, and even put a, a date, date to it uh, between 587 and 585 uh, BC within a few years. But it's only been for about the past century or so that we've actually had the archaeological confirmation of the palace in Tephanes, where Jeremiah and Zedekiah's daughters had stayed uh, for those 16 years after the fall of Jerusalem. So we're talking about Jeremiah. He, he looms large, obviously, in, in the Bible, in the history that you're talking about, and the archaeological evidence that you're talking about. And yet, isn't it interesting that you, you find it wasn't the castle of Jeremiah that that was in Egypt. It was this castle of the Jews' daughter indicating that who who he was traveling with was important indeed. It, it wasn't just his entourage. Right, because especially now today, because Jeremiah, he's uh, he's got a book of the Bible named after him. He's wrote in uh, a number of books of the Bible. He wrote Jeremiah. He wrote Lamentations. Uh, he had a very strong hand in writing pretty much all the former prophets. And so to most Christians today, Jeremiah is more famous than Zedekiah's daughters. But if you were an Egyptian living in Tephanes in 560 and you'd been like, oh, some old guy and the daughters of the deposed king of Judah just showed up, uh, they would have probably been much more concerned about like, oh, well, we've got like an heir, heiress to a throne here uh, in Tephanes with her, her guardian. Uh, and so they, they would have definitely been much more concerned about the daughters than they would have been in Jeremiah. Right. And that's the, that's the, the relationship that I, I want to emphasize and talk about a little bit later in the third segment is that there's this, this unique and important relationship where here is this royal daughter, this royal, this representative, this, this woman carrying this royal line in herself and this senior advisor, this sage, this prophet, this man who, who guides her, like you said, who, who's, who's like not only that, but even uh, a guardian to her, uh, who has experienced all the things that he's experienced in such an intense and tumultuous period in Israel, in Jerusalem, seeing the, 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 the fall of that entire kingdom. And as he said, in, says in his writings, the very unexpected destruction of Zedekiah, his line, his his sons, his the, even the nobles, uh, and and yet there's there's this royal line that is continuing. And again, it's this relationship between the royal and the prophet that's very unique in this history. And it is actual history. And you've uh, you you were going to talk about the history 
and the proof of it and the evidence for it uh, from after he left Egypt. Yeah, because you have to um, really pay attention to this king's daughters because God had made a promise to David that the line of David would never die out. Now, Zedekiah and his sons, the Bible is very clear, were all killed. The daughters had a cousin named Jeconiah whose family survived in Babylon. But Jeremiah specifically, also recorded in the Bible, put a curse on Jeconiah's family that no descendant of Jeconiah's would ever again sit on the throne of Israel. Which you would think he would not do that if, if, this, if this is a human endeavor, because at that point, he is desperate. Israel, or Judah is desperate to have anybody survive so that this royal line can survive, right? Especially the males. Um, and yet he specifically says... The, the Zedekiah is taken captive and dies in captivity. His sons are all killed. The nobles are all killed. And even this last best hope, <laughs> Jeconiah, doesn't count. It's not with him. So it's, it's remarkable that, that he narrows it down, uh, like points, uh, paints God's uh, promise into a box, <laughs> it seems, where it can't be fulfilled. And yet in the United States and Britain and prophecy, like you're saying, and in other history. I mean, you we're looking at a big uh, 17 by 30 inch um, framed, basically 100 year old infographic um, that you've shown me about the royal line of Britain, um, that, that it's that royal line that is, is so crucial in all of this. But go ahead and tell us more about where not only Jeremiah, but this royal representative, this king's daughter went after they left Egypt. Right, because Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt in his 37th year, uh, which would have been about 569. I think that's why Mr. Armstrong used that as the date of Jeremiah's transplanting, is that he could stay in Egypt for 16 years, but Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you heard there, Zedekiah had some daughters that got there because he came with an army. And so like, okay, we, we've got to go someplace else, probably not east of here because that's all ruled by Babylon. So right. west of here is great. And so if you would have gotten on a ship there, you'd have, uh, your next logical step is to go to uh, Tartissos. It's a, it's a city on the southern end of Spain around Gibraltar. In Bible, it's called like Tarshish. There's references to Obed, Obadiah to Jews in uh, the land of Sepharad, uh, which is the Jewish name for Spain. That's where you get the term Sephardic Jew. There was a Jewish community in uh, Tartissos, uh, which is right there on the Straits of Gibraltar. That's also been thoroughly excavated. No specific reference to the palace of the Jew's daughter in Tartissos. But they do know that the Tartissos, they were using a version of the Hebrew alphabet back then. They were speaking a language which a number of linguists uh, have drawn similarities to Celtic. So you're, you're writing in Hebrew, but you're speaking in a dialect of Celtic in Tartissos. It was still open to trade about 20, about a generation after Jeremiah's time, Nebuchadnezzar con, uh, conquered Phoenicia. Tartissos was originally a Phoenician colony. The, the, the links with the homeland got severed. Uh, Carthage took over the area and actually sealed the Straits of Gibraltar so ships couldn't go through it. Um, at least Greek ships couldn't go through it. I guess Carthaginian ships could go through it because they were trying to protect the tin trade. Because uh, Tartissos, that was your gateway. The, the major tin loads at the time were in Britain. And so you're taking the tin, taking it through Gibraltar and back through there. So Jeremiah and uh, Zedekiah's daughters, they got through Tartissos just in the nick of time uh, before that was actually closed to international travel. 
And that's interesting because you're looking at God's promise to preserve David's line, the only royal family in existence at the time in the entire Atlantic seaboard was the royal family of Ireland. The so ro- say, say that again. That's that's remarkable. Say that again. Because there were a number of royal families at the at the time. There was there was a royal family of Tartessos, and there was a royal family in Ireland, and there were royal families in Greek city states. But of all those royal families, the only one that still exists with a throne today is the one is the royal family of Britain. And so, for <laughs> if the Bible leaves off Jeremiah and these daughters fleeing from Egypt westward from Nebuchadnezzar's uh, coming invasion in his 37th year to found a royal family that still exists to this day. The royal family of Britain's the only option. It's the only current royal family with roots going back that far. And I'm looking again, I'm looking at this uh, M.H. Milner, I think. He was uh, commissioned to trace that genealogy. We don't know that it's, you know, 100% accurate, but we, we believe uh, that it very well could be. And uh, and I'm looking at this continuous, you know, the operative word here is continuous line going back, uh, you know, far beyond Jeremiah even. We talked about the, the trade and I've been listening to podcasts about the Celts and stuff. And uh, it is remarkable what you can tell about a place because of, you know, the trade that goes through there or, or you find something in a certain place that indicates, well, this place had to have been trading with, <laughs> you know, this f- other far away place. And uh, so we're, we're, we're looking at some archaeological evidence and we're looking at some, uh, some goods in different places that show uh, which, which of these places were connected. That's how we know that here at the west end of the Mediterranean Sea, this is such a thoroughfare and we know when it closed, uh, also from, from history as well. But we're going to talk a little bit more about, about the goods that were found in different places. Take us then from Gibraltar to the next stop. Yeah, well, it is interesting. And there's actually been a couple pretty landmark discoveries that haven't gotten much attention just in the past couple of years. Uh, one is there's actually an excavation going on as we speak uh, in Fort Navan, which was uh, it's a it's a abandoned city in northern Ireland which used to be the capital of the kingdom of Ulster, which ruled the northern fifth of Ireland in ancient times. It was, it was famous for housing the best warriors in Ireland. But while excavating the city, they actually found the skull of a Barbary ape, which radiocarbon dates to about 300 BC. So that's about 200 years after Jeremiah, uh, about 250 years after Jeremiah. So uh, the ape didn't come with Jeremiah, but the interesting thing is the Barbary ape... Um, it's a very specific type of ape uh, that's only found in Morocco and Spain, basically the both sides of Gibraltar. And so the only way for a Barbary ape skull to get to Fort Navan, Ireland, is that if Fort Navan actually had active trade with Gibraltar in uh, 300 uh, BC. Um, and so the, the, the ape skull pretty much proves that that is the case and that there was a trade network going from Northern Ireland to Gibraltar that existed at the time of Jeremiah and Zedekiah's daughters. Uh, it's really interesting discovering, like I said, how <laughs> Jeremiah's next stop is that Fort Navan, it was the capital of Ulster, but actually one of the most famous kings of Ulster was um, Olamfadla. Now, Olam Fadla, he, he, uh, the Irish annuals say he actually was the high king over all Ireland or, or a high ruler over all Ireland, but he's most strongly associated with living 
in the area of Ulster. As a matter of fact, some Irish annuals even say that the word Ulster is just an elongated version of Olam. The Irish Book of Names will say that that's like actually the Ulster itself was named for Olam Fodla, uh, who was a ruler from that region, which we now know from um, excavation had trade connections with Gibraltar and was a high king over, over Ireland. The book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, I mean, it makes the, the case that, like I said, Olam Fodla was actually another name for Jeremiah. Fodla was an ancient name for Ireland, and Olam just means prophet. So Olam Fodla, it's not even, it's not a personal name. It, it just means prophet of Ireland. So there's a prophet of Ireland, lived in the northern regions of Ireland, but, but still reigned from, from Terra, who sounds very similar to, uh, he set up Ireland as a great kingdom, similar to Jeremiah, uh, what Jeremiah would have had to do to transplant this daughter to uh, a throne of David. And so it, it really gets down to the fact that, like I said, if you can, <laughs> if you can prove that Olam Fodla and Jeremiah lived around the same time, then there's no reason to not think they weren't actually even the same person. Uh, and this new excavation in Fort Navan is actually doing some good proof towards that end. A lot of the Irish annals that the that the uh, were put together around the year 1000 AD, like during the High Middle Ages, uh, and they um, they were put together with a political purpose, because the English were starting to move into Ireland, and so the the Irish monks were trying to infuse an Irish sense of nationalism. And so they were writing down their history, but they were writing it down in a way that was trying to make it look like all the various tribes of Ireland came from one common ancestor. And so a trick they used to make it look like that was to actually stretch out some of the genealogies uh, and make it look like Olam Fodla lived back all the way 1700 B.C., uh, and so you read the annuals of the Four Masters, some of the better Irish uh, annuals, they will say Olam Fodla lived 1700 B.C., that was challenged, that's been widely challenged, that the fact that they said, okay, there's this legendary figure, lived 1700 BC, but the, the Irish annals also say that he lived eight generations before the founding of Fort Navan. And so if you can find out archaeologically when Fort Navan was founded, you've got a much better way of determining when Olam Fodla would have lived than just taking these annuals at face value and going back all the way into the Mid-Bronze Age. Uh, the excavation that's going on there now is starting to find um, radiocarbon evidence that Fort Navan emerged as a regional capital in the 4th century BC, roughly around 350 BC, just shortly before that ape skull showed up. So if you go eight generations before 350 BC, you're right in about the 569 time when Jeremiah showed up. So actually taking the archaeological evidence of when Fort Navan was established and going the eight generations back would have Olam Fodla at the in the early Iron Age at the same time uh, Jeremiah and Zedekiah's daughters disappeared from Egypt, making a really strong case that they said that he actually disappeared from Egypt, spent a little bit of time in Gibraltar, and then went up the Tidrating routes to Ireland around... Well, the date Mr. Armstrong gives is 569 B.C. and not a thousand years before that, like many of the annuals claim. So you have this figure, this this massive figure that people attribute to having rule over Ireland 
Uh, some some say he's a king, but but we know for sure he has just a massive influence on Ireland, its rulership, its government, uh, and he's there at the same time, according to these pieces of evidence, as Jeremiah the prophet would have arrived in Ireland. So you have biblical evidence, you have archaeological evidence, and we we wouldn't say that it's overwhelming, but there are key pieces of evidence as to the the migration, the travels of Jeremiah after the book of Jeremiah ends. And uh, it takes us through Egypt, uh, through Gibraltar, and right to Ireland. You're listening to KPCG. We'll be right back. for today's last word. So we're talking about and we're looking for evidence of where these people were and where this man was. Why? Why are we looking into whether this tin ingot is from Cornwall or somewhere else? Why are the people who test tin ingots looking into whether they are from Cornwall or somewhere else? Why do we see something about an ape skull in Ireland, which is probably not something at the top of CBS Evening News or MSN or Yahoo or even Citizen Free Press or someplace like that? Why do we see that and we think, ooh, I'm going to print this out. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a read. Why do these things catch our eye? Because they match up with the United States and Britain in Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. That's the book we've been talking about. And that is quite the title. The United States, okay, I'm familiar with that. Britain, I'm familiar with that. Prophecy, I'm a little familiar with. But you put them all together like that. The United States and Britain and prophecy. Bible prophecy stopped being written 2,000 years ago. It's ancient. It's Middle Eastern. It's mysterious. And it's not part of normal conversation. And Americans and British don't mention it in normal conversation, not even in church. And I respect you if you attend a church. It's becoming a braver and a greater thing to do every single day. It's like being part of the resistance. But you can see, and we can all see more and more, that the churches aren't strong enough. Even the ones who oppose what's happening, and some of them don't even oppose it, but they've mixed it so much into their religion, these ones that don't oppose it, and now they're mixing this in. And they won't talk about prophecy, even though Jesus Christ was a prophet, not just as an honorary title or something. He made specific prophecies, forecasts about the future. And the Bible is, is full of that. I've heard that one out of every three verses is prophecy. I haven't counted, but look through the Bible, just go through it, flip through it and, and look at how many books are about this topic of prophecy. And there are some churches out there who, who attempt to tackle this, but uh, they're outside of the normal uh, and they conflict with each other and their interpretations of the prophecies don't work out because you can't just figure it out just by, by reading them. Uh, otherwise, they would be known widely. And yet in a history book there and a linguistic study here and an archaeological excavation there, clues. 
and evidence, like we've been talking about. Evidence of what? Evidence that for all the time that has passed and for all the miles traveled and the generations come and gone and all the mixing of languages and cultures and religions, for all of that, there is a line. There is a line from the Irish and in relation to them, the British, and in relation to them, the Americans, all the way back to the royal Jew's daughter, to Jeremiah, and to the nation of Israel. He was that key link in the chain from what we all think of as Israel, that what ancient inscriptions identify as Israel, what history books recognize as Israel, this bygone Mediterranean kingdom, a link in the chain from that to right now. This is history, and I have seen that it is well beyond my paltry effort to cram much of it or even much of the proof of it into 55 minutes for a Wednesday morning. But the fact that Ireland traces back to a tribe of Israel, the fact that Britain traces back to a tribe of Israel, the fact that America traces back to a tribe of Israel, and the fact that there are prophecies, warnings about Israel and about Israel's descendants. If this, then that. If this, then that. Cause and effect. We are suffering a lot of effects in this country. And it is maddening to be experiencing something and not know why, isn't it? You are experiencing effects. This nation is experiencing effects. Turn on the news tonight and see some more effects. We are experiencing horrific, dishonorable, unmentionable effects. There is a cause. And you look into Israel and you see cause and effect in every possible history or record or encounter or metaphor or illustration or poem or song or utterance before the fact, after the fact, it's a record of cause and effect, clear cause and effect. They're shown right there in national security and the economy and the culture and the religion in the egregious and horrendous things that they did to themselves and to their children. And the Israelites believed not their God that made them. And the Israelites obeyed not their God that made them. You see that over and over, or you read that over and over. And it's not just a story. This is, this is real history. It's, like, it's summarizing entire eras, entire lifetimes, generations of, of, of in, the, in the kingdoms there of Israel and uh, of Judah. Look at it and understand what it is you're seeing there. There are the causes. There are the effects. The United States, modern 21st century, driving down the road in your car, listening to the radio, fearful for your country, is connected back to Israel. And you look at this and you, you realize no wonder what is in the Bible is in the Bible and other things aren't. No wonder the Bible has been preserved. And no wonder the Americans and the British and the Irish and others have built generations and risked their lives and educated their children and become who they became and fought and died for what's in this holy book that's supposedly Jewish, supposedly Mediterranean. <laughs> we are connected to Israel. The United States and Britain are in prophecy. And it's not because the Americans or the British or Israel are God's favorites and he loves them more. I've got to say that. And anyone has understanding this has got to understand that. Write me letters at the trumpet.com. And I will do a whole episode on that. They're not his favorite. He doesn't love them more. There's an explanation for why 
the Bible is about Israel because it is because it is about Israel. The whole thing, the history then, the history now shows us that we are like they were completely and absolutely and literally doomed to try to come out of this on our own. We think we'll solve it from another election or another candidate or another couple billion or another bill or another law or getting some celebrity to back down for a little bit over what it was they were going to do or to boycott some singer. That's not going to bring us out of this. We have been here before. And what will the history of the future record about us? And the Americans believed not their God that made them. And the Americans obeyed not their God that made them. America, you are in prophecy. America, you connect back to the Bible. The reason you are suffering what you are suffering the reason you are becoming what you're becoming. It's in there and there are answers. And that gives me hope. I hope it gives you hope. And and I know for sure that you had better prove for yourself what I'm saying. I don't expect you to take all of this just from a couple segments and a couple examples of evidence as proof positive that America is the descendants of ancient Israel. You are definitely going to have to look into it yourself. I highly recommend the United States and Britain in Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. You can find it, order your free copy at thetrumpet.com. Of course, that's something that you have to prove for yourself, but I hope this introduces the idea to you, the topic to you, and gives you some kind of hope because it, we need some. So that's all the time we have for Trumpet Hour this Wednesday. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for thinking about what we're talking about, rolling it around in your mind, challenging it, proving it for yourself. And we thank our faithful sound technician, Isaac Lorenz, for whom the uh, definition of work hours, (laughs) regular work hours is uh, flexible. He he works hard, he works long, and uh, we do appreciate him. And thank you most of all for listening, for having an open mind, for caring about this country, for caring about what we are uh, we're discussing on this show. We will be back with you on Friday and with the Week in Review program. We look forward to that. Thank you again for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.